Hi, Terry. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me today. You're very welcome. Uh, so you've done a lot of work about intuition, creativity, and psychotherapy. This is true. And we're going to talk about that today. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> so in a way, we're in a situation that is similar to what happens in psychotherapy. There's a moment we have to start. There's a big gap of what to do. And so how is something going to happen from that? Ah, <laughs> that's a great way to start, especially since you and I don't know one another. And so whatever happens is absolutely going to be novel between us. We can't rely on any ritual with one another. Um, there's no formula for what we're doing. And to me, that's really exciting. And it's one of the most fun aspects of psychotherapy when I can't predict what's going to happen. And that's the place where um, I think the importance of novelty has been underemphasized and novelty and creativity go hand in hand. So many therapists may not think of themselves as being creative people because they think that creativity has to be connected to painting or drawing or doing music. But I think that creativity is mostly connected with novelty and that what we do when we really achieve full intersubjectivity, where two people are fully present in mind, body, and spirit, uh, is a, an emergent kind of novelty that comes really in the space between you and me in this case. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about um, uh, a sense of a space that's populated by two human beings um, and present in mind, body, spirit, uh, maybe just a slight edge of, if not anxiety, some fear about what is new, because what is new cannot be totally reassuring. Uh, but at the same time, uh, certainly a degree of excitement uh, about what's going to happen. Exactly. And when, when you are um, taking that somatic focus on uh, the relationship between fear and excitement, it reminds me of my very first clinical training outside of my uh, graduate school training, which was at UCLA and was in cognitive behavioral. And even at that time, I was not attracted to that modality at all and didn't believe in it, even though I did a dissertation in it. But I went outside into the, the Gestalt world, and the formulation there was that um, excitement is fear that is supported by the breath. Hmm. And I love that idea, especially as a yogini, which I have been for more than 40 years. And I really think that that's the case, that when we truly breathe into the scariness of the unknown, um, then we can feel excitement more than fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that sense of uh, excitement is fear supported by breathing. So that yeah. not running away from the fear, not pretending it's not there, 
actually being very aware of it, but utilizing it as um, some kind of a platform that helps us go farther if we also bring that mindful attention to breathing. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm having images not only of yoga class, which I've just come from, uh, so it's on my mind with, with the breath, but also as uh, a previous rock climber, I was a very serious rock climber for a long time, and that sort of toggle switch between fear and excitement is so it was so familiar to me there, you know, in, in terms of hanging, hanging over the edges of things and being on the edge uh, continuously and, and then attempting to still my mind and focus and um, convert the, the scariness of, of that into, into excitement. Mm. So, you know, I, I have personal acquaintance with the uh, situation of the unknown in therapy but not certainly not in rock climbing. And I'm a little curious uh, to invite you to talk a little bit more about what it felt like. You know, you describe it a little bit. Was it something that um, you had a, a, an awareness of fear as you were doing it, or was it something that... Yes, you know, when I was most avid as, as a climber, climber was um, really kind of at the end of graduate school. So I was in my late 20s and my 30s when I was most doing most of my climbing. And I was so aware of fear. And I had this very peculiar syndrome, I'll say, as a rock climber, which was that when I was following, I, I had one partner and that partner was a real veteran climber who had been climbing for 25 years. He knew lots of the routes that we were doing and he just was so collected and calm and such. And when he led and I followed, I would go anywhere and I felt kind of fearless mm -hmm. following because I trusted him. There's, there really was a, an attachment dynamic going on. I, I totally trusted this fellow to um, keep me safe and to be safe himself And indeed, in the years of climbing, he so rarely fell. Um, I so rarely had to catch him on a lead fall. But any time I tried to lead myself, I couldn't do it. I would get terrified. I did not trust myself. I could not overcome that barrier, even if I had just followed the very same climb and knew I could do it and knew it was in my body. And I spent years in therapy trying to overcome that fear to, to be the lead climber and fully trust myself. I never succeeded. And eventually I just, I just surrendered to the fact that I will never be a lead clean climber. I don't enjoy that level of vulnerability and necessity for self-trust. And um, I just surrendered to following. But for me, interestingly, As I have gone on in life, that um, conflict emotionally in me has come out again and again, and I keep I keep transcending it um, in other areas. I keep going into things that terrify me in my interests, and you know that are very new or very edgy or very non-mainstream, and. Um, and I overcome my fear 
and I'm a lead climber in my professional life is how I feel. The things that I kind of get into um, that are, are just way out in the stratosphere. And I'm, I'm even, I'm going further than I've ever gone currently in that direction. So um, this whole um, challenge of really settling into and owning the potential of the fearful, this, these fearful um, situations has stayed with me. And I, I really do think that the, that climbing was um, a big part of what catapulted me emotionally and in other ways, creatively um, to continue uh, doing what I couldn't do with my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so there's a lot in what you said and in the climbing. Uh, so you were noticing that, that very intense fear, um, but that it could really be assuaged by having that partner who was a lead climber. Yeah, I trusted my partner more than I trusted myself. Yeah. And that made me feel ashamed a lot. Yeah. So, so, so just there, you know, again, I want to, to notice there's a lot of charge. There's a lot of, a, you know, when we talk about something like this, we just simplify it in terms of having fear, not having fear, uh, climbing, not climbing. But what you're talking about, you're talking about I trusted my partner more than I trusted myself. You're talking mm-hmm. about feeling shame about this. So mm-hmm. we're talking about really a very big complexity of mm-hmm. things that are involved in that challenge. Right. Uh, we're also talking about the fact that, uh, you know, in other circumstances, you have been able to actually become the lead climber uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and transcend that, but not in climbing. So, mm-hmm. so we're talking about something that is, you know, multi-level, multi, you know, complex. And mm-hmm. you certainly are not coming here presenting it and saying, I have found a recipe for conquering all your fears. And, uh, you know, here's one, two, three. But there's a certain degree of mysteriousness about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and there is an interesting dialectic between the places where I couldn't conquer my fear and then the places that I can. And that, that, um, that paradox is, I think, at the basis of the psyche everywhere, actually, that, those kinds of poles uh, between opposite extremes um, I think make for make for a lot of what we do and and complexity you use the word complexity and um, my interest in in nonlinear science um, brings me right into complexity theory as as the um, hallmark of health both mm-hmm. physically and mentally emotionally so maybe let's talk a little bit more about that that sense of embracing complexity uh, uh, as uh, you know in terms of also mental health in terms of uh, uh, you know dealing with opposites dealing with fears dealing with doing stuff mm-hmm. sure um, especially in the uh, the world of short term symptom focused therapy. The ideal of that kind of therapy is take away symptoms, remove symptoms, bring the person back to some kind of baseline of health, let's say, like a, a, almost as if it's like a flat line, like an MMPI where 
pathology is are, are spikes of, of symptoms and health is, is a flat line. Well, um, first of all, from a, a neurobiological point of view, it's absolutely impossible to do that. We cannot take anything away when it comes to the brain. We can only add things. We can add connectivity and we can um, add uh, circuitry such that maybe it moves away from the circuit that where the where the symptoms are, but we don't take away anything. Um, it's a trick of the mind, of the conscious mind, to believe that anything can disappear like that. And um, from a complexity model of health, it's it's not about reducing uh, symptoms. It's about increasing variability. It's about having the capacity to go anywhere and everywhere and uh, being able to flexibly and fluidly uh, choose and, and go where we need to in a particular moment. And so, um, and this is true physiologically too. The heart rate variability is, um, is, is a classic uh, sign of, of health and um, having a wide variability is very healthy and having a narrow vari- variability, having a rigid, rigidly narrow uh, variability is a sign of, of um, lack of health. Yeah, yeah. But so, so that's a, it's very counterintuitive in the way that we, we tend to conceptualize things. Um, that's right. That um, we, we tend to think that, you know, simplifying, reducing uh, is going to be what helps us thrive. Um, we talk about extinguishing memories uh, instead of actually redirecting attention uh, right. redirecting focus, uh, and um, and actually that or or, or reconsolidating memories. So reconsolidating a memory in a new context that helps make it more palatable, and um, and in fact that is has been along with the focus on relationship as the um, universal. Uh, ingredient of, of uh, what makes for a successful psychotherapy, there is some um, speculation that memory reconsolidation is, is the universal factor. So um, there, as you're saying, it's not about getting rid of an, a memory, although there is a, a kind of a scary um, new drug treatment that, uh, that may actually um, do the sunshine of the, uh, what was that called? That, that uh, eternal sunshine of this, of the something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, mind or... <laughs> uh, right. Right. Which is a great movie. I love that movie. Um, but this idea, yes, of of getting rid of, of of things is is it is counterintuitive. Although what's interesting to me is the more I seep myself in these notions and really, you know, in a fully embodied way. Like dance is a really good example um, where I can now feel intuitively um, the the value of, of these ideas. Where in dance, um, so I don't climb anymore. Or I I did I did once uh, just to see what 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 that was like as on my uh, what was it my sixtieth birthday. I think, yeah, my 60th birthday, I hadn't climbed in a really long time and I did. And I hired a guide um, 
and did, uh, you know, I did pretty well. I did a 510, which um, in the climbing world is is really not bad for not what having. What is a 510? Um, so a 5-0 is like walking up stairs. And a 513 is like trying to climb glass. And so a 510 is, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty high on the, on the, now there are levels of 510, you know, there, there are multiple levels of 510, 11, 12, um, 13. And apparently if anybody has out there has seen the new um, movie solo about climbing El Cap, um, which is just an incredible movie. Um, but apparently, I think there are five fourteens now, but they didn't exist when I was climbing. <laughs> so people, you know, keep pushing, you know, keep pushing the threshold. But anyway, um, I, I'm mostly dancing these days, and the um, the trick, or one trick, and I've actually never articulated this before, so this is sort of exciting for me to do, is there's sort of a a basic developmental sequence that goes from differentiation to integration, right? Um, And so the differentiation is being able to move each muscle separately from every other muscle. And then the integration is being able to coordinate them um, in a, in a flowing smooth way. And um, and so you can sort of hear the variability in that, that in the differentiation, we have access to every single one of the muscles in, in our body. And, you know, and then the coordination is taking that, um, taking that complexity and, and making it one unified, one unified thing. Mm-hmm. Which, we try to, you know, I, I think in many ways, mental health is, is kind of like that too. Having access to all our faculties and all our talents and our strengths and our weaknesses, even our unconscious and our conscious and, um, and then unifying that in a smooth way and drawing upon whatever needs to be drawn, drawn upon in, in any given moment, in any given context. Right, so so there is um, there is a sense of finding the unity and the complexity. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, and there's the paradox of the simplicity and the complexity as well. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, so just maybe we started this with that sense of um, interpersonal, um, the that that space between the not knowing what to do, um, the how to fill it. Um, and um, we went to the notion of danger mm-hmm. and um, reassurance, and then, um, you know, finding ways to get danger in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of all of this related to that notion of creativity. Also, yes, re- related to the notion of creativity, and also to the notion of play um, and creativity as a kind of play and play as a very, very basic emotional, uh, motivational circuit that is in all mammals, humans and animals as well. And creativity, and because as we're talking about the danger, um, you need safety to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, so, in- so, so I like the, that concept of, um, you know, this kind of that finding that perfect zone uh, where there is some degree of not safety in the sense of not total predictability, but there is enough safety that, you know, it's not going to be a catastrophe no matter what. Right. And in that zone, you know, wonderful things can happen. So maybe could we talk a little bit about the uh, experience, the felt experience, the embodied experience of mm-hmm. being in that zone, of inhabiting that zone? Oh, yeah, I love that. Creativity. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, as, I'm going to go back since you mentioned embodied. Um, I'm going to go back to dance um, because that is a place I, I've been dancing now for maybe 40 years doing um, ballet and jazz. And when I first started, um, I was not in the zone. <laughs> not When I first started, um, I was trying to think my way by thinking about my body parts and thinking about how to move them and put it together. And I was not only jerky, but I had no sense of space. I also had a a left-right dyslexia. And anytime I got anxious, I would, I just automatically would go the wrong direction, often hit people around me because I'm not, I wasn't able to take into account the space around me. And I, but I stuck with it. I stuck with it and also wanted to learn how to learn. I'm really convinced that learning how to learn is more important than learning any particular thing. That's something that I have said to my children as they were growing up um, over and over again. And it's something that I have practiced in a very embodied way, both in yoga, but especially in dance, because I was much less coordinated in dance than I automatically was in yoga. I was I, very flexible and I've been called a pretzel in a former life actually. Um, and, but in dance, I really, really had to learn how to do it. And what I learned, um, first of all, I've been amazed that I, after all these years, I see many of the same people in many of the same classes and, a lot of people don't progress, which I find very interesting. Um, I think they go there for other reasons. They go there just to, to have fun or whatever, um, listen to the music, uh, chill, chill out, take a break from their life. But I go there to, to improve. I go there to learn how to learn. And so um, over time, some of the things I've learned about how to get into a flow include uh, – uh, the, probably the biggest one is turning off my brain, Talk, turning, you know, not thinking. I, and, and yoga helps with that a lot um, because it's, you know, thinking of it as a meditation in yoga is very useful, kind of a silent meditation without words. Um, and learning how in yoga to spread focus throughout the body and beyond the body um, is, is another important thing as opposed to focusing on one part of the body and especially some part that's in pain. That's not a good thing to do. Um, It's, you know, spreading evenly. It's like Freud's evenly hovering attention, but now it's focused inward into the body. And um, so, so that was, 
that was how, ironically, I learned how to memorize choreography Mm -hmm. in dance. Because when I tried to do it in my head, I couldn't do it and my anxiety would block me. And I would, I would have, you know, I would um, like um, space out and, and not be able to just freeze, not be able to remember at all. So not trying to remember with my head, trusting my body, the thing I couldn't do when I was climbing, um, uh, trusting, trusting that it knows what the moves are has really helped me learn the choreography and, and the memorization. But then I have the, the big moment for me in flow and, and really truly achieving it after all those years happened. It, it happened in a single day where um, I recognized that I want to call it a, a synesthesia. I had a synesthesia experience. Synesthesia for, you know, just to explain what it is, is a blending of senses. And there are some people that are synesthetes, like um, a lot of the lightning mathematicians, for example, who can, you know, instantly come up with the answer, see uh, colors or see numbers as um, words or, you know, there's, it's a blending of the senses. It's, it's um, a lot of musicians um, also have this where, where they, they see colors um, as their musical notes take the shape of, take the form of, of, of uh, colors and, and this sort of thing. Um, and there's a lot of controversy about where that comes from. For me, it wasn't quite as literal as that. But what happened in that moment for me was that all of a sudden my body started to sing the music. Mm. And when that happened, now I do it all the time and I do it in yoga too. I do it in yoga too. I sing the flow if it's a flow. Um, and I especially like when music is on the background on in the background because I do, I do dance to it. Um, and which, uh, you know, a lot of yoga teachers, not liking that, you know, would not like that, but those are the teachers that don't have the music and that's fine. I, I can also practice without it. But this, this experience of my body turning into the, a song that is channeling the music, suddenly I'm not in it. I get out of the way and it just does this thing <laughs> with the music and it's like an emergence in the space between in a song yeah. that we started with. Um, and I think it, it, to me, it is the purest kind of flow state because my ego disappears and something takes over my body and moves it. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm moving it and it's delicious. I mean, and it also, is a meditation as, as well, because when that happens, nothing else exists, which, which by the way, is the beauty of the rock climbing with that level of fear, nothing else exists and it wipes the slate clean. You know, that's how I think of it is, is it's like the wiping the, the blackboard clean. Um, nothing, the past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. It's just this complete immersion in the moment 
and um and and it's really valuable it's the, probably nothing does it more than rock climbing because you fall you die under some circumstances so you know you're really in the moment you can't think about you know what's for dinner or whatever you can't think about anything like that um it's pure focus but when when i can achieve that as well in either dance or yoga it's just this really really kind of delicious feeling of of oneness with the moment music the choreography etc and um i do think that is uh kind of the essence of creativity and whether it's there or it's you know a dialogue with the music like that or it's a dialogue in psychotherapy it's a similar kind of melding and melting into that moment where nothing else exists but the person you're sitting with and the thing that's coming up between you hmm. so so I want to you know kind of um play back a little bit of what I remember of what you said. Uh, and the, the risk is, of course, that I'm oversimplifying it. There was a richness to what you said. But so, um, you know, we're, we're talking about creativity and uh, you're talking about your experience in dancing where uh, it didn't come easy for you. You noticed uh, that, that awkwardness. Um, and, uh, and then you mentioned that actually instead of trying to learn, uh, you were focusing not on learning, but learning how you learn uh, so that there was that curiosity about why you do what you do and how you learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of doing that was um, very consciously turning off the dialogue, the inner dialogue, the brain uh, talking, just very similar to what happens in meditation or what you do in yoga. And in that sense, um, you know, creating that, that space um, where, you know, it's not a guarantee that it will happen, but what happened to you was that experience where you could actually feel yourself being the music and, yeah. uh, and resonating with it, just like violins can resonate without being played or, you know, something that exactly. you were in it. And that's a state of flow that you really appreciate. Yes, I think that was a beautiful uh, way to sum up what I said. I don't think it oversimplified at all. And it, as you were saying it, what was coming up for me was a, about a week ago, I think I had my, the crowning glory of arriving as a dancer, which was I was just um, meeting someone for the first time and talking to that person. And that person said, are you a dancer? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I that brought the greatest of joy to me yeah yeah, yeah. because so, clearly i was moving my body in in the same kind of fluid way that i had been really trying trying to achieve so, so it brings up for me another uh, sense of the word creating you know, like we talk about creativity moment by moment, the moment of having an idea, the moment of catching something that we hadn't thought about before. But here you're talking about um, a longer term thing of how you created yourself into another possible version of you. Uh, yeah, and you became nice. a dancer. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's nice. Yeah, it's a kind of self-creation. Mm-hmm. 
And I do think that that, that self-creation and creative acts that are external kind of go hand in hand. You know, that, that just like in therapy, uh, when, when, um, when there's a creative process in the space between, in that inner subjective space, it doesn't only create a new version of the patient. It also creates a new version of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's one of my focuses in the clinical intuition and psychotherapy book is how um, change is a two-way street. Yeah. Um, yeah. That it would not happen actually if it was a one-way street or, you know, just, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yes. So, so the intersubjective space, of course, is the space where two people are subjects instead of one being subject and the other being objective. Um, and, uh, and so being aware that, that, that space and there's a space between and that, uh, you know, there's a space that's created by both of us and, um, and, and kind of playing with that space and shaping it and uh, sensing into it, uh, as opposed to just being focused on what you do, but kind of a um, lateral awareness um, of that space and almost physical uh, sensing of that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And, and certainly there is a, there is a somatic element to it you know we feel when the other is kind of leaning into that space and open in and openness and openness openness is probably the most important quality you know courage is important from where we started where just the courage to face the fear face the unknown etc but openness is even more important. I'm mean, safety certainly is necessary for openness, but openness really allows us to kind of lean into those spaces between, and we can feel when the person that we're with is closed or def- and defended because, and then what we're doing is uh, coming up against defenses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So we're talking about it, of course, in the context of psychotherapy, but this also applies to everyday life, you know, to the sense of um, how we approach interactions with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how we approach just our, the activities of our day and how much we are either locked into rigid patterns where we just repeat the same thing over and over again um, versus being open to um, just to, to novelty there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, if that conversation is shifting, it has been shifting to that sense of creativity in everyday life um, for people, not just therapists, but for all of us, um, and uh, and that you know, you bring up that sense of um, being in touch with the rigidity, the potential rigidity, uh, and being in touch with you know the potential for openness, uh, acknowledging how safety is going to obviously be helpful uh, in you know facilitating openness. Um, 
and you know that uh, openness together with curiosity as we mentioned before in the dancing the the learning to learn you know mm-hmm. so so um uh how do we actually notice um physically that transition from the more rigid mode uh to that more open curious flowing mode mm. well so there there i would go to yoga because that's the thing I've been doing the longest. I started when I was sophomore in college. So um, that has been many, many years. And I think when I've done like my 10,000th sun salutation, how do I do that and make it new? As opposed to I'm repeating something I've done 10,000 times, I'm going to check out. And that's, for me, that's part of my practice is, and it's a different kind of pursuit of novelty. There's the, you know, there's the, the, the big kind of N, I'll, I'll say this similar to, there's the little C and big C kind of creativity, you know, where the, there's the everyday life creativity and then the genius type of creativity. But I'm making this up now, the little N and the big N in that, the big end, the big novelty is somebody transforms their life. We see a, a patient or we, you know, we go about our business and suddenly we have this watershed experience and go off in another direction. But the little end are the tiny nuances and finding how to tune into that tiny nuance and perceive the novelty. And I think as a therapist, for me, that's that's one of the most important skills, especially when I'm working with a rigid person who claims, I don't know how to change, nothing ever changes, the, the future is going to be like the past, and this is your classic fixed mindset or depressive mindset or uh, stuck stuck personality or something. And so to be able to go into a session, then the person for the you know, hundredth time says the same thing about the same situation, but I'm focusing on some nuance that some difference in what's happening and how it's happening. And by amplifying that, I try to uh, kind of get leverage in the change pot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> string it's like a little string i catch hold of it and then i try to pull it uh, more and more um by noticing the differences in in where that rigid thing is and i think it's very similar to doing a sun salutation and really trying to find um, how to make it new even though it's very very old and it's a, a repetition so that kind of search for novelty is a depth is the depth of it as opposed to the big N, which is more the breadth of it, you know, and both are important. But as therapists, probably the 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 subtle the depth one is the most important, especially if we work long term, which I tend to do. I tend to work with patients for years um most most of the people i see i see for years and um if we want to go deeper and deeper after seeing someone for that amount of time 
you gotta, there's gotta be somewhere to go. And the, you know, that subtlety is really helpful in, in deepening the work. Yeah. 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 So that reminds me of the quote about the, uh, the bell, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the broken part through which the light comes through that uh, the big part is the bell, but you need to focus on the part that's a little broken because that's Mm -hmm. where the light is going to come through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely, that's a lovely image. That's, um, what's his name, the singers. Leonard Cohen, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Leonard. Love his, love his music. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just taking a moment um, to see if there's something you want to add. Well, I will address our process uh, in the last moment. I think it's only um, only fair to circle back around to what we're doing since we keep talking, keep coming back to intersubjective space, which is um, this is this has been really nice for me. I have found myself talking about a lot of different things that I don't ordinarily talk about in one place and. It feels like um, there's been a, a sort of a nice flow in how these things go together, mm-hmm. um, and with a with a, a good somatic focus because I know this is um, the somatic world is where this is is going to. So um, I I really I I enjoy the, the somatic metaphors um, and and how sometimes those somatic Metaphors are, are actually literally true also. And mm-hmm. um, that way that the, the uh, metaphorical and the literal blend through the body is very cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Joey. You're very welcome. Again, thank you so much for the invitation. <laughs> this is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.